if there's something that we have to cut, we mm -hmm. can totally do that. It's not like we have to just like publish right this right whole there. thing. Okay. Um, so I'll just kind of like make sure, oops, sorry, okay. that we're all set here. Um, so hello, I'm Bree Adams, and this is Relatus episode five. I'm here with a very special young woman, and I will let her introduce herself to you. Hi, my name is Jayla Walton. Um, I am a sophomore at the University of Wisconsin-Madison, and I am studying English with an emphasis in creative writing. So Jayla is another one of my former students when I was a counselor in North Lawndale. Um, and I mentioned this last episode, but today I really want to talk about housing. And Jayla is here because she has had some of her own experiences. Um, so we're going to start maybe, Jayla, if you don't mind. Um, can you give us just a little bit of your background and kind of how you ended up at North Lawndale College Prep? And, you know, the, the big picture is housing. So okay. you're a storyteller. <laughs> you can take us there however, however you'd like. OK, um, so kind of just jumping straight into the basics. Um, Basically, after fifth grade was kind of where um, housing became kind of an issue. My mother got really sick, um, and so after fifth grade, I had to go move to Washington State to live with my uncle um, just because she was so sick that she wasn't able to, um, able to take care of me anymore, um, not to the way that she would like to take care of me. I mean, when I came back, which was um, a year later for seventh grade, um, we were living with one of her friends, well, former friends, um, and then, you know, still not having our own, um, things became a little bit, you know, more rocky. We didn't really have a stable income, um, you know, transportation was a little iffy. So after that, um, not going to get into like that whole <laughs> thing, but um, after seventh grade, that's when we um, actually moved into a shelter, um, which was on the south, um, south side of Chicago. Um, we lived in... I cannot think of the name right now, but we actually lived in um, two different shelters. So my eighth grade career um, was at one um, one sh uh, shelter on like 79th and Essex, um, and then uh, midway through that, like in the beginning of like my ninth grade year, um, we ended up moving into another shelter. Um, and so like, and then after that, like the middle of ninth grade, that's when we actually moved into our home. Um, but from that time of like eighth grade to ninth grade and like halfway, um, we were actually in a shelter shelter living with other women and children um, and that whole process. So when you say we, was this you and, and your mother? Mm -hmm. Yeah, me and my mom. Um, so yeah, once I came back, um, which was for my seventh grade year um, of, of school, we like after seventh grade, that's when you know we had to move into a shelter. Um, and so it was just me and her from eighth grade to like the middle of ninth grade. Can you talk a little bit more about what it was like, let's say, going to school when you're living at a shelter? Can you share any of those experiences with us? Yeah, that was, uh, like, as I think about it right now, it was very difficult because, um, for one, the location of where the shelter was. So the first location was actually in a church, and the church was right by the school, and it was also right by um, a corner store where everybody that I went to school with would go. Um, and so I remember having to lie and be like, oh, I actually work at the church and, you know, I was there for awkward hours. So, like, when they would see me after 8, it's like, why are mm -hmm. you still there? Um, it's like I would have to lie because I was embarrassed at the time um, and I didn't want to tell anybody. I was the new girl also, so the new girl doesn't want to just come yeah. out and say, yeah, I'm homeless. Mm -hmm. um, and so I would lie and just be like, yeah, I, um, you know, I work at the church. Um, uh, I, I'm here until, you know, my mom would come and pick me up and different things like that. Um, so it became very difficult or even – 
of the simple fact of a lot of friends wanted to have sleepovers or different things like that. Um, and the shelters that I lived in, one of them, um, you couldn't spend the night out. So that was awkward. It was like, well, my friends want to come over, but they have nowhere to go. Um, mm -hmm. And then it was like, I want to go over their house, but at a certain hour, I got to leave. Um, and it was hard to have to explain that to some people. So I wouldn't, there was only one girl that I actually was able to explain that, um, and that's my, like, we're still close to this day. She's like my sister now. Um, but I would just be like, she knew that I was homeless, but everybody else, I'd just be like, oh, um, I can't this time, or different things like that. And it was just like, I always had to keep up with the lies. Mm -hmm. And my entire eighth grade and half of, even actually my entire high school career, I didn't feel comfortable with saying that I once was homeless until about senior year. Um, when everything started kind of coming back up and things were kind of going good for me to feel comfortable. Um, but yeah, it was, a, it was a constant lie. Yeah, I was doing this, I was doing that. It was so many things. Because one, being homeless isn't something that people, like people are aware of it, but it's not something that's brought into so much light. And there's so many negatives that go to being homeless that especially as a child, you don't want those negatives to mm -hmm. be associated with your reasoning. Mm -hmm. Like I wasn't homeless because my mom was strung out. I was homeless because she's very sick. Um, or I wasn't homeless because we just didn't care. We had everything back then. It's just things happen, you know? Mm -hmm. um, and so it was very difficult having to, sh you know, to, to share that or even talk about that at, at any point. Um, but like I said, like as like high school got better, I moved in. Like I'm still living at the house that I've been living in since we moved out the shelter. Um, the shelter, so that's great. Um, but it wasn't until things like I I became more comfortable within my skin for me to actually be like, yes, I used to be homeless. Mm -hmm. This is my story. However, that's not who I am anymore. So, I think you brought up some good points too. It's like society definitely holds certain stigmas or stereotypes mm -hmm. about homeless individuals and mm -hmm. however we want to define homeless because I think there are a lot of ways exactly. that we could define that. Um, so it makes sense that it's not something you necessarily wanted to flaunt, especially when we're talking about kids because mm -hmm. we all know kids aren't always the nicest folks <laughs> to be around. Um, so when you were living in the shelter and going to school and trying to like hide that part of you, I mean, what did that feel like? Let's talk about some of your feelings and your emotions. Uh, not to be funny, but it kind of felt like the Hannah Montana when she was trying to hide. <laughs> it kind of felt like that a lot. I don't know if I've seen that one. <laughs> um, it's, it's, yeah, but like trying to like hide this whole idea of who you really are. It's like trying to be behind this facade. I mean, especially in eighth grade, you want it to be, like, you, you, you want to fit in. You want everybody to like you. So pretending like, oh, yeah, I have this or I have that, when you really don't. So it was a constant, like, oh, why don't you have this new pair of shoes? Or when I did get a new pair of shoes, I thought they were great, but all the other children would be like, those are so old and different things like that. So it was kind of having to, you know, stick up with, this um, societal like acceptance of what's in and what's not mm -hmm. um, and like now that I think about it it was it was even difficult on my mom because it was like I wanted so many things and she knew that mm -hmm. so it was hard on her to try to give it to me mm -hmm. um, and I didn't realize that back then you know all the sacrifices that went into like uh, on a mother's standpoint um, obviously as a child there wasn't much I could do but all the things that she wanted to do but she couldn't um, and so yeah you know I would just always feel like I was behind this mask and I had to make sure that this mask did not look crooked that way everybody would know that you know nobody would know that there's something under it mm -hmm. I wanted to make sure that it was on perfectly that way um, you know it never came up or anything like that it's like the 
facade of perfection. Exactly. Mm -hmm. So without, you know, like divulging too much information, you mentioned part of the reason you and your mom were living in a shelter is because your mom was really sick. Mm -hmm. So can you talk a little bit more about that? I mean, like what were other, were there other options for you two? I mean, like what, I guess without leading too much, like what things should be in place that aren't, you know, like let's talk about housing in Chicago a little mm -hmm. bit more. So let's start there. Okay. Um, well, housing in Chicago, even with being homeless, there's a lot of issues that go into that because you would um, hope and suspect that as long as you're homeless, you have a, like there, there are shelters that have a place for you. The act, like the the reality of it, a lot of the shelters that we even looked into, there's an application process. There's this whole, um, some places they ask for a fee and different things like that. So it's not really acceptable to a lot of people. Um, it was just so that um, we were blessed enough to be accepted and and to be in that process. But there was a lot of issues with that. I remember going with her to the office and having to file as homeless and look at all the different places and different things like that and having to move bags and, and, you know, all those different things like that and move it into our shelters. Um, and overall, it was just very difficult because, I, like, bringing back to me being a child, yes, I was advanced, but I never knew the reality of what was happening. Mm -hmm. Like I said, like, from fifth grade and, and before, I was set. I had everything I could ever want. Um, I didn't really realize that mama was struggling or anything like that because she wouldn't verbally say, oh, yes, I'm struggling. Mm -hmm. Yes, I paid attention to some things, but I never knew that that's what's happening. Um, and so that's like the reality for a lot of housing situations. It's not an easy, oh, okay, you're homeless, you can go here. No, you can go here to fill out this application, and I hope you have somewhere to stay until we get back to you. Mm -hmm. And that was kind of how it was. And the reality was uh, we didn't have a lot of places with to, like to go within that when we left we had to leave and so it was like if you don't have somewhere to go like I could go places but my mm -hmm. mother couldn't go places mm -hmm. and, um, you know some places were more accepting to me because I was so young and I'm a child and they don't want to see a child on the street but my mother had to you know sacrifice and do things other way um, other ways and so there was like a lot of difficulty with that um, within that like I said luckily and, and we're blessed to have it happen where we didn't have to separate mm -hmm. or anything like that but that was a lot of things that were happening. I know one of the shelters was only for women and children, which meant men and children had to find a different um, outlook. Um, and so there's like an issue, a whole nother stigma and issue within like men in, in homelessness, um, opposed to women and children in homelessness. Mm -hmm. So it was a lot of different things that we had um, encountered within that process. Um, and then, and, and like I was saying, like in the first one, we were able to get in, and that's great. And same for the second one, but there were still application processes. There were still um, things that you had to do in order to secure your spot. Because mm -hmm. yeah, you're in, but you, but like you have to secure your spot. Because if you don't, you gotta leave. Mm -hmm. So you're once again back on the street. And so that's kind of a lot how that process went. So. Let's think about high school now. So it sounds like by about halfway through freshman year, mm -hmm. you guys got situated in the home that you guys are currently staying in. Mm -hmm. um, if you remember, I was one of the liaisons for the STLS program. Mm -hmm. So that stands for Students in Temporary Living Situations. Uh -huh. So if you, I, I have some guesses too, but if you had to guess what percentage of your classmates, so let's say the class of 2016, mm -hmm. do you think faced some sort of housing 
insecurity or instability? At least half of them. Yes. And, and the only reason I would say that is because I knew a lot of people who, not necessarily saying they were homeless, but they dealt with other things. Mm-hmm. Uh, some of my friends, uh, I or you know, acquaintances from a high school would come to me because they had, you know, certain things going on. And I didn't say that I also, but they just felt comfortable with them telling me. So it was a lot of students. Um, I would say specifically from my class, about 35 to 50% of mm-hmm. them had some sort of um, like housing um, issues that were coming up. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think you're right on. So when we had, um, we did a tally of the enrollment in the program. So the way CPS defines homeless, it, you know, they call it a temporary living situation. So this could be a shelter, this mm-hmm. could be a park bench, this could be a friend's house, this mm-hmm. could be you're doubled up with your aunt, but you're primary caregiver isn't on the lease. So I appreciate that they defined it broadly. So there were about like 10 to 15% of students in each grade level who were part of this program, but I would call them the more, um, you know, quote unquote, obvious Mm -hmm. students. So once I started to get to know more people in the class of 2016, they tell me about their living situation. I would be like, wait, you qualify for this program. Mm -hmm. So by the end, we had about 35 to 40% of the students in that class receiving supports for students in temporary living situations. Mm -hmm. So I think you nailed it. I mean, there are a lot of ways to define Mm -hmm. these kind of like insecurities. So what does that say about Chicago? Why, like, why is this a problem? Why is this an issue for so many young people? I think it's, Well, I think for one reason it's such an issue is because no one brings, like, the proper light to it. Um, No one wants to talk about their situation a lot. And that's for so many other reasons. (laughs) We would have to break through that the Uh. entire day. Um, But uh, I would say that one of the reasons is it's not something that we're comfortable with to talk about. Um, Even bringing up not even the issue of homelessness, but, like, the issues within the black community. There are so many... There are so many like positive stereotypes that we want to hold on to that we don't realize that it's okay to suffer. We've suffered for so long, and so we tell ourselves, since I've struggled, since my ancestors have struggled, I want to be better. Mm-hmm. And so being better doesn't necessarily, people don't realize that being better means you have to come from the ground up. Um, and so I think one of the biggest issues is because in, the, in our homes, we are not taught that it is okay to suffer. It's okay to struggle. So when we do struggle, we want to lie about it. We want to do things that we probably wouldn't have ever done, but we want to get out of our situations quick. And that's because we were always told that you have to be better than your counterparts. You mm-hmm. have to, you can't listen to this stereotype because there are so many negative stigmas that go with being homeless or being black in America in, in general. Um, and so I, and, and I can even attest for that in my situation, a lot of the reasons I didn't even want to talk about whether it was mental health, physical health, or my housing situation is because I was always told that I have to stay strong. And so anything that wasn't strong you were considered weak and mm-hmm. nobody like nobody wants to be considered weak but that was that's a strong issue in the black community this idea of weak and this um, perception of strength within everything and I think that's one of the biggest reasons that a lot of students in general don't talk about it if mama says you got to stay strong you got to do what mama says and so anything that is shunned out the family or anything like that you just don't talk about it I feel like the word vulnerability kept coming uh-huh. into mind. So it's almost like you're you're talking about this, um, like you don't want to feel vulnerable mm-hmm. because then you feel weak, like exactly. you said. And then what does that mean if you are weak? Exactly. So let's try to talk more about um, 
housing generally, right? We talked about how many young people mm -hmm. are struggling with this, and I think you did a good job um, talking about this, um, I don't want to say inability, but uh, a hesitance mm -hmm. to talk about vulnerability, ask for help, things like that. So like, how, how does that connect? And then where are the affordable houses? Like, What's going on with that? Do you have any thoughts? Um. I would say when it comes to affordable housing, sometimes you got to find your house by a friend and not necessarily by the system because the system only puts you where they want to put you. <laughs> um, because what, the place that we have now, we didn't even hear about that until my mom's friend told us. Um, and I love where I live now. It's a three bedroom townhouse. Um, that's great for me coming from, I had to share a room that was the size of a closet. Mm -hmm. It's in my own room, my own everything. <laughs> so that feels great for me. Um, um, but yeah, so sometimes uh, that access is not easily given to us. Um, and that's because, like I said, systemically, obviously, we don't have to bring race into the issue, but we know that as um, a black person in America, they only want you to be as far as they want you to be. Mm -hmm. And so they're only going to give you the resources that they want to give you to keep you in their radar, not to have you succeed. So we found our place from a friend. Um, and like I said, it wasn't some place that we had known of. And so when I know people that are going through, I'm like, oh, there's an opening over here. Mm -hmm. I know places. And they're like, oh, I never heard. Yeah, because places don't tell you that. They would put you in certain neighborhoods, and I don't live in the best neighborhood, but they also don't put you in certain neighborhoods because they know that this neighborhood's doing pretty well. I won't put them there because I don't want them to be able to not need help anymore because they get off of that. People, you know, the like everybody in, in higher systems will want to help others who feel that they are weak or don't want to call themselves weak. So, um, yeah, I didn't know about a lot of these places. A lot of these things you kind of have to look for, and that's unfortunate because if you don't know where to look, you're obviously not going to find your answer fast. Mm -hmm. um, but it, it does take that process of looking on your own and not having to go to other people, um, or not, not even other people, but other systems, or going and filing for different things because you're not going to find it. Mm -hmm. So it's like adding on this difficulty of navigating some of these systems mm -hmm. that you know you can bring race into it. It's very appropriate to bring <laughs> race into it because, um, you know, as I'll probably talk about more in the conclusion, our country has a history of very inequitable housing policies from yeah. blockbusting and redlining and white flight. And mm -hmm. I mean, that's not really a policy. That's more of a, an outcome of some right. of these policies. Um, so it very much is about race. And I think, you know, when we talk about, okay, we know that there are a lot of young people who have insecure housing issues. And there are these systems that are very difficult to navigate. You mentioned, you know, having to go sign up for a shelter and then maybe go somewhere else and finding somewhere else to stay in the meantime. Um, so I think the issue is the fact that we don't have systems set mm -hmm. up to support people who are struggling with some of these issues. Mm -hmm. um, so let's talk about school a little bit more and let's think about educators specifically. Mm -hmm. So what are some things that uh, administrators, teachers, counselors should be doing in order to take into consideration students who might have some insecurity like in their housing situations? Um, for one thing I would say, I don't want to say don't come off too strong um, to your students just because um, and, and this depends for other students, so I would say for one, gauge how the student is. Obviously, you don't want to be like, are you hopeless? But at the same time, 
get them comfortable to fully talk about themselves. Um, I've noticed, um, especially like with, with you, you made us feel comfortable to talk about our situations. But I know a lot of counselors who are just like, okay, what's up? You know, there's no like breaking it down. It's like they automatically have a conclusion. And that's one thing that I would say, don't draw conclusions because mm. you don't know what the situation could be. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I would say before you draw a conclusion or before you even come up with a, a solution or anything like that, fully hear what's going on, reach out to the family. Like, yes, the student's going through it, and that's fine that you're talking to the student, but a lot of times the student doesn't necessarily know how difficult things are. So talking yeah. to the parents and seeing what the parents need. Yeah. Um, because that can supply, like, that can mm-hmm. be a good support for the students. Like, like I said for myself, I knew that we were struggling, but I never fully understood what was happening until I got to college, mm-hmm. until I was able to sit down and be like, okay, but what's happening? Because yeah. I, you know, uh-huh. things that I can deal with now. Um, so I would definitely say make sure that you try to talk to not just the student, but the student's family, because nine times out of 10, it's the family that's going through like the entire thing and not just the student. Mm-hmm. Um, and the, the student only knows as much as the student can know. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's one thing I'll say. Um, I'll also say like, think about resources all around. So when it comes to homelessness, think about homelessness is not this broad thing of like i am homeless i don't have a home because you can have a home and still be homeless there are different things that we don't think about when we think of the like the term homeless we think of the people on the street we think of um people who don't have anything it could be the situation of you bouncing from house to house yes you could be on couch to couch and Mm -hmm. that is another way of being homeless Mm -hmm. um Homeless could could even be, this is a temporary space that I'm in now. Yes, it's mine or whatever, but within the next six months, I won't have it. Um, and so there are different things that we should think about. If you're going to talk to somebody who is homeless, think about, about the different situations in which homelessness can occur. Mm-hmm. Um, and then think of the resources that can apply that way. But because, I mean, if, if I'm hopping couch to couch as I have a place, but you telling me about a shelter or something that doesn't necessarily apply to me, that's not my best support. And mm-hmm. I don't feel like that conversation with me and you was that helpful because there's nothing that could be done for me at that point. Mm-hmm. I think you brought up immediately when I said, like, what can educators do? And you talked about, you know, like, give make the student feel comfortable so that mm-hmm. they can talk about what's going on. Right. But then you also said ask the family Mm -hmm. if there's anything they need. And it's like, I'm surprised, but I shouldn't be surprised how many conversations I have with young people. And it's like, what's the solution? Whether we're talking about grief or community violence or, you know, whatever the case may be. And it's always just like, ask Mm -hmm. a question Mm -hmm. because don't come in assuming that you know how to solve this problem. Get to know me, ask me what I need, Mm -hmm. and then try to figure out ways to you know, make connections. Exactly. Um, But it's just, it blows my mind how simple that is. Solving the problem of housing insecurity in Chicago, not simple. Helping students feel heard and comfortable and asking questions, simple. Exactly. Huh. Um, I can't believe how quickly our time (laughs) is going here. So I want to cover one more brief topic before we wrap up today. And then I know you might have something you'd like to share with us. So you are a student now at Mm -hmm. UW-Madison. Yes. 
And um, I'm, I'm not, you know, since we are short on time, I'm just going to cut to the chase here. So you came from a predominantly, and by that I mean pretty much 100% African-American high school on mm -hmm. the west side of Chicago yes. to the University of Wisconsin-Madison. Um, and I know that transition for you was difficult for a lot of reasons. Mm -hmm. So I'm wondering if you feel comfortable sharing any of those reasons. Um, yeah, for like the first reason, um, it wasn't necessarily a racial uh, shock just because in sixth grade I actually went to it a predominantly white um, um, elementary school so it wasn't like a big shock for me but it was a shock in the sense of um, I think it hit me worse because in sixth grade I had older people to support me whenever I felt like I was the lesser when you're off at college and you are literally on your own you don't really have a lot of support systems that are like it's okay for you to feel the way that you feel um, or even dealing with a lot of racial discrepancies and different things like that. Uh, I always, um, you know, give thanks to my scholarship, me being a posse scholar, because they've always been supportive of that. Um, but a lot of that is because when you are coming from where you're so comfortable in your skin, seeing people just like you, and then seeing other people who are so comfortable to say that they don't want you here, or so comfortable to do things that shows you that they don't want you here, that becomes very difficult. Or even leaving your situation. So my mother is still sick, so taking care of her was one of my biggest jobs in high school. And so leaving that and having to be like, you know, put that in the back of your mind, like, okay, Jayla, you need to get your education. But at the same time, it's like, I want to be in Chicago to help mama. It's so many different things that could, you know, play into that. Um, finances. I, you know, if I needed to do something in Chicago, I could call people around. I could, you know, I was working to get something done. Whereas in Madison, it's kind of like you are kind of on your own and you have to realize that as a college student, you're also an adult now. So you really got to think like an adult. Mm -hmm. And that's kind of where I started to realize the different things that my mother was going through um, while I was a child. And so, like, I, sometimes I'll talk to her about it and be like, I didn't realize that these were the different things. And I wish that I hadn't known. And I think one of the biggest things that I talk about um, even with counseling now and everybody I talk to, a lot of times what we really need is support. And it's a certain amount of support or a certain type of support. Yes, we get support by having friends and family, but when you're in your situation, there's a certain type of support that you need. And sometimes we don't know it right then, sometimes we realize it later, but I think for me what I realized, if I had the support that I needed at that time, things would be an easier transition. Mm -hmm. And that's a lot of the situation for a lot of students that I know, if they had the support that was necessary at that time. Mm -hmm. And that, that could easily be a hug. Mm -hmm. A hug goes a long way. In your situation, if you could get a hug, that could help you so much. Um, and so I, I was realizing that on campus that I was around so many people who were privileged and who didn't know the struggle. Uh, they didn't realize that black people deal with much more than what TV is. Um, and I actually go to school with people who have never seen a black person a day in their life. The black people that they would see was on TV and it was always a negative thing about mm -hmm. it. Um, even being from Chicago, people would be like, oh, you're from Chicago? What, you haven't been shot? And it's like, what type of <sighs> question is that? Um, but there are just so many things, like especially being on campus, that you have to deal with. People genuinely don't want you there. And for me, that's, a, that's my drive to keep going. You don't want me here, so I'm going to show you why <laughs> I deserve to be here. Um, but yeah, that's a lot of things. And, and I know a lot of people I go to school with, a lot of, just by everybody in my posse, Actually, everybody in my posse understands that being on campus, there's this, and it's not even just my school, it's any school that 
people of color go to and they're not the majority. Mm-hmm. Um, they have to realize that there's an extra effort to fight for us. Um, and uh, one of the things that we always like argue with um, um, our white counterparts or anything like that is like, well, what do you want us to do? And it's like, we don't want you, we're not asking you to do much. We're asking you to realize. And that's it. The, the whole idea is for realization, whether it's race, um, whether it's housing, whether it's finance, just realize. Mm-hmm. We're not asking you to fight the world against it or anything like that. We just want you to realize mm-hmm. that what we need is support. Acknowledge, oops, exactly. I almost dropped my <laughs> microphone there. But acknowledge, exactly. like acknowledge. validate that exactly. this is authentic. Thing. Exactly. Don't pretend that we're crazy because exactly. we're saying these certain. Exactly. All it is is just accepting the fact that it's real, and that's mm. all that we ask. Um, and and like I said, it's not just race. When it came to housing, I realized that what we needed was for people to realize that homelessness is real, um, because I do deal with mental health issues. It's realizing that mental health in the black community is a major thing and it's mm. real. Growing up, we didn't. My like. Not even just my family, but I know a lot of families. If you had a mental illness, you were considered weak. But it's realizing that you're not weak. You realize that you got it, but there are just things that are pushing you back. Mm -hmm. So all it is is just realizing and acknowledging that these things, these oppressions are real, and we oppress ourselves within our own community. And that's an issue with, like, but, like, one of the biggest issues is that we oppress ourselves because we are taught these certain things and because we were taught this and I won't say we were brainwashed but because it's so stuck in our head as we get older we don't realize that we have to acknowledge Mm -hmm. ourselves and our own issues. Right and I don't think we're gonna have time to get into this now but the question that I would kind of like challenge you with and everyone else who's listening is where does that come from? Right. So I think that's and, and, Mm -hmm. you know, you're talking about a lot of these stigmas around mental health. so I feel like there is going to be a related conversation about mental health, mm-hmm. um, about stigmas around it, about acknowledging it in schools and doing a better job of informing and educating mm-hmm. young people. So I'm thinking we might have to talk more when it comes I'm, to that episode. I'm down for that. <laughs> um, but I'm wondering if you would mind sharing uh, something you wrote with us. So Jayla, I'll give you a little background while she's pulling it up okay. here. Um, I, I'm going to brag on her because she didn't take this opportunity to do this for herself yet, but Jayla graduated number one in the class. She was the undisputed valedictorian um, the entire time I was a counselor of the class of 2016. And Jayla was a multiple participant in the Louder Than a Bomb poetry competition. Um, Brought me to tears a few times with both group and individual pieces. So Jayla's going to share one of those with us. And you said this is one you performed for the talent show senior year. Is that yes. right? Yes. Awesome. So let me try to no problem up here. Uh, I think this is it. Okay, here it is. Yeah. Okay. So this is um, so a little background about this poem. Um, I was homeless. And I realized that one of my biggest issues with being homeless and the reason I couldn't speak out is because it was a mental thing and I wasn't comfortable in my own mental state to say that I was going through things. Um, And homelessness, which is another thing, it's not just the physical aspect. You can be homeless within yourself and not realizing that in your head there are things that you're not okay with. Um, And so this poem is called, I Was Once Mentally Homeless. 
I used to wonder what it was like to lose it all, to have sacrificial sacrifices as a downfall, um, to belong to a place that was not your own, and to realize that life was not intended on being perfect. No, this is not a piece about an issue, and this is not a piece to confront anyone for misjudgment. This is what it is, and that is a piece. You know, I used to sit and wonder why people went without. I always had the impression that if the grass was never greener on the other side, then another side would shine through, bringing the new side to the blind eye. And I didn't realize that I was the one that was blind, but not by choice, by a governmental standpoint in which I was like rotisserie, rotating in intentional misery, internally bleeding in agony with gauze the same texture as bunny. And it wasn't until then that I began to go without. It wasn't until then that I realized that life was replaced with this idea of easy money, easy and difficult becoming synonyms, money clips replaced by bobby pins for the good weave pouring through minor skin. It wasn't until then that I began to realize that life ain't been no crystal stair and Langston wrote scriptures for Negro shares and my insurance became Negro care for I too saying that a Negro can, but, but maybe I was wrong. Maybe it wasn't until then that I realized that if the white could and the black should, then who would? And maybe that is just a rhetorical question, but did I forget to mention that my mental state is up for pension to a man who hates me because of my skin's melanin? And at the same time, maybe I forgot to mention that I was the one who let him. And in the moment of confronting, I signed my life to the huntsman for a better life. I was wondering, it wasn't until then that I had done the hunting. And with each blame, I began to fall deeper and deeper in this everlasting well, wishing well for all of my thoughts, throwing pennies for contemplated decisions. It wasn't until then that I became indecisive, enticingly responsive to the idea of this ongoing process. It's nonsense and I'm nauseous and it wasn't until then that I realized that I was the cause of this. I caused this ongoing agony, this cage mental capacity. It wasn't until then that I understood minority. It wasn't until then that I became locked in, caged birds, singing caged sins. I was the lead singer, a note higher than sky sin. It wasn't until then that I realized that I had caved in. Walls closing in, and it wasn't until then that I was the one who missed the front door. Three course meals with four tests just to make sure a curfew mixed with bunk beds. Adolescents unsure I was the breadwinner and payment was education galore. And maybe, maybe that wasn't a bad thing. Maybe I gained courage to sing my voice, my song, so that maybe I could bring of a mind not set in which my eyes stayed open enough to see. But it wasn't until then that I realized that I was homeless. No money for myself, but I paid for every moment. And to death did I part in a coffin in which I slept. It wasn't until then that I realized that each wish had become hopeless. I. I'm sorry, it wasn't until then that I realized that life is never simple and if you want something in life, you have to go get it and that's the memo. It's something like a temple bursting out like bruised pimples. It wasn't until then that life resembles crosses that, and that's the symbol. It wasn't until that I was 10 that I knew that life could change. A shot pop isn't at a score into that gang and being born by the river in a little tent and oh, just like that river, it was I who had been running ever since and for a long time coming, a long time coming, I knew that a change was gonna come. But it wasn't until that extra saying that, oh, I'm sorry, it wasn't until that extra saying until I became sanctified in my own praying. It wasn't until then that I knew that I had become handicapped and life had made me crippled. But it wasn't until then that I realized that my homelessness had become mental. I don't know if that'll work on there. <laughs> that was awesome. Thank you. Um, 
So we're going to wrap up for now. Like I said, this might not be the last time you're hearing from Jayla on this podcast, and it definitely won't be the last time you're hearing from her in general because she's onto some big things. Yes. Do you have any parting words for our um, multitude of listeners out there? I would just say for whoever's listening right now, if you know anyone that's going through anything, um, one thing that you can do to support them is just to realize that's the biggest thing that you could ever do and let them know that it's okay for them to be in this situation um i guess i can share it with you all first i'm wanting to start this campaign start um called that my story is valid just because growing up for me that was something that i never really heard um and so basically whoever you're hearing out whoever's listening if you're going through something just know that your story is valid and you have every right to feel however you feel no one can take that from you Ooh. all right It's been Relatus, episode five.